Hello, and welcome back to this podcast series, where this time we're having a look at a new product on a Semnogene Abapavovec, and whether we can unpick what it does and how good it is, and also something about the alleged hierarchy of evidence. So first off, why have we picked this product? It's a mouthful to pronounce with 10 syllables, and given all the previous ones, molnupiravir, nermotrelvir, citrovimab and the like, it's probably for COVID again, isn't it? Well, no. It turns out that there's other illnesses out there as well as COVID, and this is for one that's particularly worthy of treating, spinal muscular atrophy. So what is Onosemnogene abapavovec? Why is it so difficult to pronounce? And how well does it work? But first off, what is it designed to treat? As we said, it's a treatment for spinal muscular atrophy. Spinal muscular atrophy is split down into four types, one to four, and type one, which Onosemnogene abapavovec is targeted at at the minute, is the most severe, diagnosed at a very young age. The cause is quite complicated to explain, but to simplify, when the body is working normally, a protein, survival motor neuron, is encoded by a couple of genes, SNM1 and SMN2. This protein does complicated things, but essentially tells motor neurons not to die. Unfortunately, for some people, the SMN1 gene is affected, preventing it making effective survival motor neuron. Although SNM2 can compensate, it isn't as good. It has issues at exon 7, meaning that it sometimes bails out of transcription early, so making a less effective protein instead. In most people, the SMN2 genes that they have can provide about 10-20% to of the usual amount of survival motor neuron. But if you don't have as many copies of SMN2, you can't, which means that not as much functional survival motor neuron gets produced, which then means that the motor neurons don't get told not to die, so they gradually fail, leading to muscles getting weaker. For patients with type 1 spinal muscular atrophy, because they have no SMN1 gene and very few copies of a functioning SMN2 gene, their symptoms are particularly severe and reveal themselves within the first weeks or months of life. The prognosis is really poor as it affects the muscles needed for breathing and most people with SMA type 1 die before the age of two. So this is a very severe disease which has traditionally been very difficult to treat. However, more recently there's been a couple of medicines developed, the Onosemnogene abapavovec we're going to talk about, and nusinersen, which we won't be talking about quite so much. However, it is a little bit helpful to talk just a tiny bit about nusinersen, as it's pretty clever in its own right, and helps to put just how clever Onosemnogene abapavovec is into context. So nusinersin is what's called an antisense oligonucleotide, which we can all nod along with and pretend we understand. But what does this do? Well, as we all pretend we remember from biochemistry lectures, the journey from DNA to protein is that the DNA gets transcribed to pre-messenger RNA. This strand then gets tidied up by spliceosomes, which remove all the junk introns from the code and turn the pre-messenger RNA into messenger RNA. This mRNA then goes to code for the needed protein. With the SMN2 gene, the one that makes shoddy survival motor neuron but has to stand in for SMN1 for patients with spinal muscular atrophy, the bit where it goes wrong is at exon 7 in the pre-mRNA code. A repressor protein binds somewhere near exon 7, preventing the spliceosome continuing, and so you get a shorter, non-functional survival motor neuron. With the nusinersin on board, the nusinersin binds, as it's an antisense oligonucleotide, to the bit of pre-mRNA around exon 7. This stops the repressor protein binding, which then means that you don't get the spliceosome bailing out, which means you then get full-length mRNA going off to code functional survivor motor neuron. Winner! By adding in the nusinersin, you get the fairly rubbish SMN2 gene encoding high-quality survival motor neuron. So what does Omosemnogene abapavovec do differently? Well, from the name, we can tell that it's a different animal completely. It's gene therapy, rather than an antisense oligonucleotide. Working through, the first word, onosemna gene, means it's a gene therapy targeted against the SMN gene. The second word is about how we get it into the body. So abaparvovec means it's an adene-associated, parvo, viral vector. 
VEC that gets it into the body. It's so clever that it's actually simple. It uses a modified parvovirus that can't replicate to carry a strand of DNA that has the SMN1 gene code on it into the body. The parvovirus does its magic and goes into the cell and inserts the DNA into the cell nucleus. The DNA then doesn't get inserted into the chromosomes, but instead forms an episome, a circle of DNA that sits outside the chromosomes. This then does what it's designed to do, which is just to sit there and churn out functioning survival motor neuron. So it's a bit like the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine that uses a non-replicating virus to deliver RNA into the patient's cells to produce the COVID spike proteins for their body to practice its immune response on. The only difference being that whereas the vaccine provided RNA for a one-off production cycle before it gets broken down, on a semnogene, Abapavavec provides a stable DNA episome that can keep doing its job long-term. So how effective is on a semnogene, Abapavavec? Well, the information is all in the NICE assessment documents. The only problem is that there are over a thousand pages of the stuff. However, the trial that showed effectiveness was an interesting one. Because of the severity of the disease, it was considered unethical to have a placebo arm, so it was an open-label, historical control trial. And because the condition is rare, it included only a very small number of patients. This normally would make you a bit nervous, as it adds in a lot of potential for bias. Is the disease course now the same as it was in the past? Does knowing you're on treatment potentially affect the outcome measure? How confident are you that the result you've seen isn't just by random chance? In the hierarchy of evidence pyramid that we all think of, a tiny, open-label, historical control trial is closer to we had an educated guess at the bottom than it is to a systematic review of randomised controlled trials at the top and would be tempted to have low confidence in its results. But that isn't the case with this one. But why? Well, to counter the increased potential for bias, you need some fairly conclusive, non-subjective outcomes with a wide margin of benefit to be confident, which Onosemnogene Abapavavec kindly provides. At 20 months, 100% of the patients in the treatment arm were alive and not on permanent ventilation. In comparison, in the historical controls, this number was only 8%. This is a huge absolute risk reduction of 92% in a very solid, meaningful for patients and parents measure. This gives a number needed to treat of practically one, which is phenomenal. So yes, we might be a bit cautious about interpreting the results from a tiny, open-label, historic control trial. However, the outcome, survival, is unequivocal and highly unlikely to be swayed by knowing you're getting an active treatment, unlike, say, headache, where the placebo effect can be significant. And the magnitude of the effect is so great that, again, the small trial size and potential other biases that could be present are unlikely to have a major impact. If in the trial 10% survived with treatment and 8% without, then yes, it could be random chance or a hidden bias that's created the difference of 2%. But with 100% versus 8%, it would have to be something pretty profound to have given the results enough of a nudge to create a fake 92% difference. We can be pretty confident that even though the evidence base isn't great according to the traditional evidence hierarchy, Onosemnogene Abapavavec is a good thing. Which is lucky, because with a list price of £1.7 million a dose, this particular gene therapy doesn't come cheap. But that's one dose to fix a condition, seemingly at the minute long term, that previously limited life expectancy in babies to just months. So what have we learned? We've learned that gene therapy, which 10 years ago was a bit science fiction-y, is now coming through into clinical practice. Yes, they are excessively complex and amazingly expensive, but they also have the potential to fix things that were previously unfixable. We've also talked about how they're named, so you can sound clever down the pub, and more importantly talked about how the traditional hierarchy of evidence isn't the be-all and end-all. Critical appraisal isn't just about working through a CASP tool checklist to get to an answer. You have to do what it says on the tin and step back a bit to critically think about what you're seeing. 
A randomized controlled trial may be rubbish for your purposes if it, for example, doesn't cover the sort of people you see in practice, or shows a marginal benefit that could be disproved by the next study. And an open-label historic control study might be really useful to you if it's tightly linked to the question you're looking at, has endpoints less subject to the potential for bias, and has a marked effect size. Which leads us on to doing practical critical appraisal of the evidence base as a whole, moving from nerding it up with CASP tools to using something like GRADE, which we might cover in a later podcast. Or you could read about it in the BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine series. But that's enough for now. So thank you, and see you next time. (laughs) 